Black History Mini Docs Podcast. Welcome to Black History Mini Docs Podcast. I'm Benita Brisker, actress, singer, writer, director, producer, co-founder and president of AgriSmart Inc., an international sustainable agriculture and management company. To learn more about what we do, you can visit agrismartinc.com. You know, I am just the luckiest woman on earth. I really feel like that to be a part of something so special where I get to interview and brag on my longstanding <laughs> best friends who have mm-hmm. done amazing work, not only for our community, but, but really around the globe. And so today we are making history with our very special guest, Dr. Eric J. Chambers. Eric J. is an accomplished human engineer, a journalist, an author, an award-winning journalist, a nine-time award winner with four Emmys and five Golden Mics, uh, uh, Mike Awards on your shelf. This prolific journalist has interviewed every celebrity under the sun. I mean, everyone, very, very diverse, from Beyonce to Dr. Oz, such diversity with over 25 years of professional experience and 700 credits on his resume. Ladies and gentlemen, let's do it, let's get to it. Dr. (laughs) Eric J. Chambers. Eric J, Eric J, Eric J. Hello, my friend. I I need to go back and reread my resume. I, uh, I forgot about some of that stuff, so. Hey, man, you know what? You are one of my favorite people. But thank you. And Likewise. Know that. Thank you so much. And, and, and your resume is so extensive. I, I got a little nervous a moment ago because you have so many things in common with our producers. As I was reading off your resume, I got nervous. I thought I had mixed it up with reading Nima. <laughs> but man, that's all you. A four-time Emmy winner. Five Mike Awards on your shelf. Yeah, Golden Mikes. For this from, from CBS when I worked at CBS in Hollywood. For the sake of time, just tell us about a few of your awards, a few of your award-winning projects. Well, you know, the 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 Emmys and Golden Mikes were working as a part of a team when I worked at CBS uh, here in Hollywood. Uh, the first of the Emmys was at uh, KGTV in San Diego. It was a, um, what we call a video essay on the plight of the homeless in San Diego. And I used the music of Michael Jackson's Will You Be There to tell this story. And uh, that was the first. And then the other three Emmys and the other five Golden Mike Awards all came from CBS. And truth be told, I probably have about four more Emmys that I don't have possession of, you know, just as a team. But I didn't even know I was even qualified for them. But I have in my possession four. But um, And they're in my closet. People yeah, are amazed I mean, when I tell them I've never displayed them. I don't and- why I don't see them behind you. Come on now. <laughs> you might need to get up, but I've seen them. So I feel honored that I have seen those beautiful awards. And there's, um, it, you know, I'm sure when we visit your website and we people start looking into some of this wonderful work that you've done, we, we can see it on display. On some- Yeah, there, there are plenty of pictures, um, you know, and I just did a photo shoot recently and um and even my photographer and uh you know the team there they were you know astonished by it and um i was like man i haven't seen these since 2014 
<laughs> in fact, I'm not even, I think my daughter, she's 20. I think she's seen them once and I won them all before she was born. And I think she's seen them once. I'm not even sure if her mom has even seen them and we were married. So right. I, I just never in the closet. Say again. Why are they in the closet and not on your show? I'll tell you the story. Yeah. When I won my first one in 92, I was on, I was separated from my first wife at the time. And I said, I would, I was hoping for reconciliation. And I was, I said that, okay, once we reconcile, that's when I would put the Emmy out because like the night she, she learned that I won the Emmy at church, just like the rest of the people, because we were going through the divorce, but we were still kind of sort of dating to some degree but I had asked if she wanted to go uh, to the Emmy Award event that evening, and she said she she wouldn't go. So I uh, I called about five different women to see if they would want to go, and I finally found one, my friend Yvette, and I said, I'm going to be honest, you're not the first one I called. She said, Eric, I'm sitting here bored and depressed. I would love to go. And uh, we went and had an amazing time. And then when they announced it the next day, my uh, she was still my wife at the time, but she I didn't even tell her that night. Uh, she learned at church, just like the rest of the other people. And that was the reason why I never put it out because I was holding out for that and it never happened. And so when I won the others, I just put them in the closet like the others. But also I have to remind people sometimes that I won the Emmys. The Emmys didn't win me because, you know, sometimes we have people who get uh, awards and accolades and then they uh think it's all about them I'm, I'm still humbled by the fact that i won them i've never tried to win them you know but it happened and as my pastor used to tell me the lord is going to honor your faithfulness yeah. and uh great is my faithfulness and um you know it's 28 years i've been doing my jasper radio show yes, um without getting paid or getting little pay yes, and so the lord has his way of blessing you when nobody else is watching so I was shocked by it. And like I said, I didn't even try to win them. And even with the honorary doctorate degree that I got, I didn't ask for it. You know, when I got ordained, I didn't ask for it. It's just that people appreciate this journey and they've either recommended me or it just happens that uh, the Lord decorated my career. And, 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 and I'm, you know, I'm blessed by it. Yes, indeed. Oh, my goodness. And see, you've already talked about two things that you didn't have, or or I did not have in your uh, bio, or in, and you may not have put it in your bio, but I wanted to, because you are humble. That's the kind of guy you are. That's the kind of man you are. And ever since I've known you, you've been that way, um, very uh, humble. And, and, and although you're, you know, a celebrity and, uh -huh. and well known by everyone in the world, you keep your feet on solid ground. And yes, you are very faithful. I, I joke and call you, you know, Reverend Pastor, but you <laughs> are. You did get a, an honorary certification in your church. And we're going to talk about your church in, in just a moment. But tell us more importantly about your incredible uh, radio platform. You just celebrated uh, I, I'm going to be in trouble for saying 28, 28 years. Oh, I was right. You just yeah. celebrated your 28th year anniversary for being on the air. 
with uh, your radio. The Jazz Bowl, yeah. Jazz yeah, I debuted the show July 10th, 1994, and I was on Smooth Jazz 98.1 up until 2011, and then I went syndication with it. And then right as the pandemic started, I got a call from the station. Actually, I had just posted on Facebook. I had heard the song online, and I posted on Facebook that I missed doing my show. Less than 30 minutes later, Wow. One of the uh, execs at the station inboxed me. He didn't even see the post, but he inboxed me and asked, one, do you have a home studio, which I do? And he said, number two, do you want to bring the show back? And I was like, sure. And I was like, can I start this? Th that was on a Wednesday. And I started the show on Sunday. That was March 29th, 2020. And so uh, I just, like I said, debuted it um, two years ago, being back with the station. But overall, it's been 28 years um, that I've been doing my Jasper radio show. And, um, you know, it's, 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 um, even with all the Emmys and golden mics doing my Jasper show is probably my favorite because I get a chance to play music. I get a chance to, to play artists that you never heard of before. I'm, I'm an independent artist's friend. And so, uh, yes, I play Yolanda Adams, Fred Hammond, some of those people, um, Kirk Franklin from time to time, but I also play people like Makita and various and, other and artists Benita Brisker. and Benita Brisker. That's right. You were That's the right. very first or second, maybe the second, because I'm here with um, my alma mater, Howard University, and they played my CD uh, when I was touring with War Ears. But you were the very first or second person to play my music on air. Okay. Maybe I'm the first on on commercial radio then. So <laughs> yes, yes, you are. And and I was so grateful. So as you're saying that, you know, I'm sitting here, you know, inside just exploding because what an honor. You are absolutely right. The unknown, you know, an unheard artist get a chance to be heard and recognized on your station. And we appreciate that so much. Yeah, I, I probably play way more independent artists than I do the quote unquote big name artists. It's not that I have anything against them. It's just that the independent artists a lot of times are better than the big name artists. So just because you're on a major label doesn't you mean you have major music. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of artists that are, um, you know, I listen to them and every now and then I'll play some. But there's some people who swear by certain artists like Kim Burrell, first of all. Every blue moon, I'll play one of her songs. There's some people who think she's the best thing ever. And my show is a jazz and gospel show. And I'm not, I don't have the same emotions about it, but I also have some other artists you've never heard of. But nevertheless, they have outstanding songs. And so um, when you get I, I love being in that position to be able to uh, share with the audience artists that you may not hear on some on most of the other stations. Yeah. Yeah. To be sandwiched in between Yolanda Adams and Kim Burrell and, you know, those kind of people. Is, and that's what I'll do. I'll play you right in between them. <laughs> how, how does that feel? Let me ask you that. How does that feel to be crazy? <laughs> surreal, you know, and then your name is called out with these great artists that everyone knows. And then uh, aside from that, and then the the artists, these huge artists, are doing the shout outs on the station to you, and yeah. and and doing the uh, you know the commercial promos 
And, and yeah, the, the, the drops like I have Beyonce and Destiny's Child, Frankie Beverly and Mays, Andre Crouch, um, Mrs. Mamie Till Mobley, Emmett Till's mother. Yes. And, you know, so oh I've, I've I've got a nice collection of them over the years. It's and um, it's amazing. I, I, I want to I don't know where to begin with you because your life is so captivating. Um, so because you're saying things that that I certainly want to spend time with and, and our time is kind of limited. But I want to talk about you growing up in New Orleans for just a moment. You were born in uh, born in New Orleans, New Orleans. Yeah. The melting pot of many cultures, home mm-hmm. the Mardi Gras, known for around-the-clock festivities. Did you ever participate in the Mardi Gras and the parades wearing oh, yeah. raucous oh, yeah. costumes? Did you wear the costumes in the parade? Did you drape beads on naked breasts and you did? Yeah. I, you know, we get, we get the beads and all that stuff. And I remember my mother's 83 now, but I think she was 78. Uh, I had gone back home for Mardi Gras for the first time in forever. I go home pretty much every year. I've been out here 40 years and I've only missed two calendar years, calendar years not going. But um, about five years ago, it was cold and just me and my mother went and she bundled up. I bundled up and it was like when I was just her little boy out there again, um, you know, at the Rex parade. And that that is what made. And, And no disrespect, Pastor. Because you are a clergy of the cloth yeah. in your own right, given, as we mentioned earlier, the honorary pastoral certification for your work in the church. Um, so I, I am joking when I asked you about draping beads, but did yeah. you put the costumes on in the parade? You know, I, I didn't wear the costumes because at that particular time, the last time, well, the last couple of times I went, it's been kind of chilly, so you want to bundle up. Uh-huh. I've never gone like full and full costume like that, but, uh, but I enjoy it. And of course, you know, they, um, I love watching like the Zulu parade, which yeah. is the black parade in new Orleans. And then also, uh, seeing the, uh, black Indians, you know, uh, with their attire on. So it's really a sight to behold, but that's a part of the culture of, you know, new Orleans. Of new Orleans. T- tell us about the, um, your church. What's the name of your church and who your pastor is? Well, my, my home church in L.A. is Los Angeles, Bishop Blake. I live in Orange County. I have a church here called Cross Point. And then on Sundays, I shoot at a church in Pasadena called Bethel. And then I got a church in San Diego, St. Stephen's Church of God in Christ. So everywhere I go, I'm covered. Yes, and so um, I'm not a pastor. But but this is the thing, Benita. Yes, I'm ordained. Yes, I have an ordinary, um, uh, an honorary doctorate degree. But we all are ministers. And so... I get a chance to minister on Facebook. I get a chance to minister on the radio show. And it's not so much preaching to people as much as encouraging people. Yes. Because there's a significant difference. Like there's this one pastor on the East Coast who has been going off on Beyonce about her song called Church Girl, because the song talks about church girls twerking. Well, as I asked my sister, what part of that criticism was not true? church girls twerk, you know, Beyonce, what she was speaking from her own experience. And we've seen so many others who've done it. And so, uh, so rather than attacking people, th- there has to be a better way of, um, a, a more diplomatic way, you know, and it's like, what would Jesus do in times like these? So, so I, that's what I, we all are ministers Yes, yeah. like with my clerics collar. I've had it since 2011. I think I've worn it five times. I don't even wear it. 
because there's a lot of people, Benita, the Bible says you shall know them by their fruit. Yes, sir. For some ministers, the only way you know them is not by their fruit, but by their suit. And if they weren't wearing the cleric's collar, you wouldn't even know that they are a minister of the gospel. I just want my life. You know, the biggest ministry that I have is not in the church. It's with my daughter, Erica. There's no greater ministry for me than being my daughter's daddy. And when I share that on Facebook, as I explained to my daughter, I said, when I shared this, you know, there's a lot of guys who can preach about family, but I do family. You know, I hang out with my daughter. I love my daughter. I love being her daddy, you know. And, and um, you are a proud daddy. You gloat on her. You make us doubt, gloat on your, on your daughter because you talk about her with such high regard all the time. And is it correct? She's going to your alma mater now. Well, USC, I didn't go to SC. I went to San Diego State, but USC is the university that I wanted to go to ever since okay. I was about 10 years old wow. growing up in Louisiana. That's what it so is. It's, it's my uh, quote unquote alma mater, you know, yeah, yeah. that's where I wanted to go to do what I'm doing now. And hopefully I'll get a chance to be, you know, like one of their speakers over there this semester. And um, so that would be cool. Yeah. That, but I couldn't be more thrilled that my daughter is there, even if I didn't get there. Just the idea that Erica's there. That's even sweeter to me. Yeah. She's a beautiful girl. And, and I know she's going to be very successful. And, yep, and this year's over my shoulder there, my baby. She's just as proud of you as you are of her. You are indeed a, a beautiful father and, and a very proud father. You know, with, with that being said, while you were living in one of the most sordid cities in the country, what kept you on the straight and narrow path growing up in Louisiana? How did your course lead you, lead your life to Los Angeles? Well, if I was growing up right now, I would be diagnosed with ADHD simply because I, I was a C student all of my career in, um, whether it be in uh, high school, elementary, all of that, I couldn't think about nothing but this. I had blinders on. And unless it pertained to radio and television, everything else was just almost a blur. Mm -hmm. That and also history. So between history and radio TV, and it just so happens that if I wasn't doing what I do, I would likely be a history teacher. And are. I get a chance to mend them together, like on Sunday show, I uh, commemorated the um, anniversary of Dr. King's MLK. Um, his I Have a Dream speech in 1963, yeah. August 28th, and then commemorated the death of Emmett Lewis Till that happened on that same day in 1955. Yeah. So I still get a chance to use my platform. So instead of me, say, for instance, teaching in front of 25 or 35 students, I have the nation. And I did the same thing with my television show on the Word Network. I was like, okay, well, I'm not you know, just confined to the class, I'm going to go ahead and teach and I'm going to have an even far greater reach. So I still am able to implement that love for history as well. And that's another thing back I'd to your like, question. I'd like for you to add to your bio. You are, I, when I talk about you, I, that's one of the first things I say, that pastor is a historian. He knows the word and he knows history, but uh, go, go ahead and, and tell us. Uh, well, it, you know, growing up in Louisiana, I, um, you know, I was, I, I was in, I came from a single family home. And so I used to run around there interviewing the cats and the dogs and the tree leaves if the cats and dogs were not available with my little makeshift microphone. I got a picture of me when I was 11 years old pretending then what I do now. Do, we, do you have it there? 
I um, let me see. I can pull it up on my phone. But the thing about it is, again, I was focused on it. Yes. And I knew even as a child what I wanted to do. Yes, and it's so, part of your imagination. And and if you can see it, you can be it. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it's so very true. And 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 a lot of us don't know how to. You got it. But this is. Oh yeah, we can see it. Go a little closer. You see that picture of me on the left right there? <laughs> okay, that's my mother, my brother. They're in their play clothes. My play clothes was a suit with that didn't match. Stripes were killing each other. <laughs> but in my hand there is my little makeshift microphone. This was November 28th, 1974. I was 11 years old Child. running around there pretending to be a, a television and radio host. Uh, that is really an amazing And thing. so when I show that to people, they're amazed at it. And so I tell them, no, I've been at this for a long time. I, I got my two years later, I got my first job in the industry as a 13 year old sports writer making three dollars an article, you know, for the Slido Daily Century News there. And um, so I went from covering Little League Baseball all the way to covering Barack Obama's uh, run for presidency of the United States. You know, I covered the San Diego Chargers in football, the San Diego Padres, the New Orleans Saints. So I've really have been blessed where I've been able to. And then, of course, all the red carpets. My first red carpet was waiting to exhale back in 95. And my last one was a couple of weeks ago here in Beverly Hills, where I interviewed people like Oscar De La Hoya, Sugar Ray Leonard, Jamie John Fox. Lovitz, Jamie Foxx, all those people. And so I, um, incredible. How, how did you find your way to Los Angeles? What happened is I was stationed in the Navy in San Diego, lived there 13 and a half years and left my KG, KG TV, the ABC affiliate. I worked there seven and a half years, took a $10,000 pay cut to go to radio. And 11 months later, that $10,000 pay cut was down, was that $25,000 pay cut. And I was only making 30000 back then. So I went from 30000 to 5000 in 11 months. <laughs> and um, But the thing about it is I had a vision for what I wanted to do. And I, that's why I tell people, you know, um, make sure that your motive is not the money, but it is, um, you know, something that you want to do. Yeah, with with your purpose. And so all of that stuff I've been able to regain. And then on top of that, I've gotten favor. But nevertheless, in 1995, I kind of got bored uh, wanting to get back in the TV. And I called NBC and Channel. Uh, I was living in San Diego. So I called NBC4 here in LA and I called CBS. NBC4 didn't call back, but the guy from CBS did. And I said, I just want to come up for a tour. Can I come up tomorrow just to look at the newsroom? He was like, sure. That was on July 11th, 1995 is the day that I went there. Wow. I got there at 10 after 11 and by noon I was making 32.50 an hour. Just let me in the door. That's who I just, and I ended up editing 21 stories that, you know, and I just asked him, can I just have a t-shirt? I didn't know they were going to pay me. And he called me and he said, you know what? We have to pay you. And, um, he was so impressed. And then on top of that, um, about, Three weeks later, I moved from San Diego to L.A., not even knowing if I'm even going to be on the uh, schedule the next week. And the supervisor even told me, he's like, man, I admire you. I said, well, this is a faith walk. So I moved from San Diego to L.A., August 1st, 1995, to Studio City, not even knowing if I was on the schedule the next week. 
and everything so, worked out in your favor. You 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 have to be fearless in your career. You have we have too many people who are afraid to step out on faith. Right. You know, they're afraid of what might happen. But what happens if that doesn't happen that you're afraid of? Preach, Pastor. No, what's really fearful is driving on the freeway in between two 18 wheelers. You know, that's fearful, you know, but we do, we do it every day. We do it every day. I, but I, when I, it comes to believing in your own skills and believing that um, somehow you're going to make it, you know, people, they, they, they talk themselves out of their own visions and dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I was driving in, in New Orleans and the, uh, the water level is so high. I felt like I was driving in the ocean. It was <laughs> here, talking about driving between two wheelers. In, in, in August 2005, Hurricane Katrina was mm-hmm. a Category 5 Atlantic hurricane that caused over, geez, 1,800 fatalities. Where were you when Hurricane Katrina hit? I was here in Southern Cal. You know, my mother and they were on the run in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And I, it took about two or three days, and my mother was able to call us via a satellite phone just to let us know that they were okay because they were out of electricity for several uh, days. And um, but they survived it. And then we did lose like a couple of people. Like one of my grandmother's last remaining friends, Miss Ruth. She, you know, she died in Katrina. You know, she tied herself to like a rope in her apartment, but she drowned in the apartment. And we knew other people who died as a result of it. So that was, um, you know, that was, I mean, a a catastrophe of all catastrophes. And it was the costliest natural disaster in history, in in U.S. history, with $125 billion in damage. It was just, yeah, such a... Yeah, and then the the majority of the damage happened not because of the storm itself, but because the levee broke. Yeah, yeah. You know, the levee got breached, and when that got breached, and then it sends a flood of water into places that can't handle it, and that is, you know, that was the culprit. Yeah, yeah. You you always speak very highly of your family and, and your amazing mother, your brother and sister. How are they? Are they still there in Louisiana? Yeah, my two sisters, my brother lives in Albuquerque. I have my two sisters in Louisiana, my mother, nieces, everybody. And so um, all is well. We, you know, as I was telling my daughter the other day, when I was growing up, again, I I grew up in a single household. And and in fact, I had this conversation with my mom the other day. I said, Mom, I'm blessed that I've never heard you and a man arguing. I've never heard you cursing a man out or a man cursing you out. So that's not in my DNA. And so I'm blessed by that. And um, and another thing, when it came down to us, um, we we supported each other. When my brother played basketball and football, and if I didn't make the team, I became the manager on the team. <laughs> and when I was a DJ at the club, and if I had 30 gigs, somebody from my family was at 27 of them. And the only reason that they weren't at the others is maybe somebody had to work or my brother was away in school at Jackson State. You know, uh, so I did that before I went to Southern University. So we've always um, supported each other because I got friends and family who say that they got relatives situations where their relatives never even attended one game. Yeah. 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 You always speak very highly of your family and I look forward to meeting them one day in the future. Louisiana is certainly, certainly rich in history. Um, Just to talk a little bit about Louisiana, which makes you so beautiful and and your life is so colorful in the in the 1700s the slave trade was a 
huge business, right? Help us out here. Cargoes of black slaves were transported to Louisiana, eventually making up a large percentage of the population where there were four African slaves to every 1.2 free whites. Let me see if that is in my notes. Is that right? Four four African slaves to every 1.2 free whites. And slaves Mm -hmm. existed as the majority of people for over a century. And so then the the colonization of of these African and the French and the Spanish uh, cultures began to blend and created the culture known as Creole. I know this Mm -hmm. because I just studied it. I had Mm -hmm. to learn a little bit of Creole for a job recently. I had to say, uh, don't tell the family. Mm -hmm. Because I will look like a fool. So <laughs> I had to learn some Creole and it, it, does that sound right? Did I, did I, I don't know if I said no, it right. No, no, you're right. And of course, uh, Louisiana has still, you know, tremendous French influence. You know, the state flower is the fleur de lis, which is, which means a lily in French. Yes. And, um, you know, there's French, Louisiana is the most unique state in the whole country. New Orleans is the most unique city because you go there and when you're down in the French border, you think you're in Paris, France. Yes. Because, of course, Napoleon and the French, they owned it up until the uh, Louisiana Purchase, which sold Louisiana from, you know, sold it from Louisiana all the way up to the Rocky Mountains. And I think they paid something like four million for that at the time. You know, and so, um, so, you know, we used to have to learn Louisiana history when I was growing up there. And so I have a great appreciation coming from there yes. and, um, and the uniqueness imagine. of the city. Yes. I've spent some time there. I have friends there. And, and as I said, most recently, having to study a little bit of the history to learn the Creole, um, it, it, it was, you know, it's quite fascinating. And I, I want to pay homage now and take just a second and and honor a dear friend and actress friend of mine who passed during COVID. And she was known as the queen of Louisiana, Carol Dickerson Sutton, a beautiful woman and actress. And um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for, for those memories. But you, we have to take a commercial break for a BHMD special moment. And we'll be right back with Dr. Eric J. Chambers. We are back. And in case you're just joining us, I'm Bonita Brisker, and I'm talking with a nine-time award-winning journalist and documentarian filmmaker, Dr. Eric J. Chambers. Okay, so so I, I want to jump right in and talk a little bit about something that's very special, something that's very unique, very important, your relationship with Mamie Mobley, the mother of Emmett Till. Emmett Till, the 14-year-old African-American boy who was abducted and tortured and lynched in Mississippi in 1955. You talked a little bit about this uh, a moment ago after being accused of offending a white woman by whistling at her. This incident rocked the nation during a time when racial segregation and political unrest was was at its breaking point. You have inside information being the surrogate grandson of Mrs. Mobley. First, tell us, how did your relationship, when you say surrogate grandson, how did your relationship begin with her? Tell us how she's... Well, Ms., um, 
I lost both my my grandmothers back in the eighties. So Ms. Mobley became a surrogate to me back in twenty two thousand. Actually, I I saw a play here in Hollywood called The State of Mississippi versus Emmett Till. And afterwards, I went up to the producer and I asked, what would it take to bring it to San Diego? And he said, you. And I, I was like, OK, well, I was working at CBS at the time, making good money. And I said, OK, I'll do it. And about three weeks later, the, the play that was playing at a 99 seater here in San Diego was on the in, in Hollywood was on the road. And we ended up in San Diego for a weekend. And what I did is I asked the producer to call to see if she would be my special guest. And she said that it was cool to give me her phone number. And I called her. And from that day until the last day I spoke to her, we just really clicked. And um, I flew her out here to San Diego, she and her cousin Abe. And we just had an amazing time. And, um, and then even before the event and even after the event, you know, we still stayed in contact. In fact, the day she died on Jan uh, January 6, 2003, she died that afternoon, and I was scheduled to call her that evening to confirm that she was going to come back and visit with me again, this time just a regular visit, you know. And um, so, but nevertheless, we, we just became very close. And, you know, and I, I gave her my word that as long as I'm alive, I'm going to do my best to continue to tell the story like I did on um, my show on Sunday where we commemorated the death of Emmett Till. Yes. And, um you know, and then I was blessed that I had a chance to speak at her funeral. I mean, this is someone I learned about in the history books. And there I am, a little fellow from yeah. Slidell, Louisiana, speaking at the funeral of this iconic lady. You know, she and, um, you know, Sister Rosa Parks, which I have a picture up there on the wall. You know, I became very, um, I mean, there's a picture of me and Sister Rosa sitting on a park bench. That's a 20 by 30 poster. Uh -huh. And um, and so, you know, they both be they knew me by name, uh -huh. you know, and um, and after I saw Eyes on the Prize in my U.S. history from a black perspective class in 1987, that's when I fell in love with my history even more. So I loved it with roots. But then when I saw Eyes on the Prize and I took uh, part A and B of that class, it was all over then. And when I brought Mrs. Mobley and I was able to bring you know, have some of my uh, black history professors there, including Dr. Shirley Weber, who's now the secretary of state of California, but she was the head of Africana studies at San Diego state at the time. And I've got pictures and stuff. And in fact, what I'm in the process of doing is a second documentary on that, but it's going to be about our, my relationship with her and that weekend in San Diego. And then I have quite a few pictures. And so what I've decided to do is in addition to the documentary, to memorialize it by putting together another coffee table picture book so that long after I'm gone, these pictures will still continue to tell the story about that weekend in San Diego. That's beautiful. Hey, man, you are really, um, you, you push the um, envelope beyond the boundaries and, uh, you know, you have so many incredible stories. We're definitely going to have to get you back on the show again and talk about some of those other incredible things because I'm thinking about um, the event you held, the birthday party recently for Snoop Dogg's mom and and just so many other amazing. She was another. She became kind of like a surrogate mom to me as well. Yeah, and, and we became. In fact, 
my relationship with her was very similar to my relationship with Mrs. Mamie Till Mobley. You know, it always ended with an I love you. And just as I spoke at Mrs. Mobley's funeral, Snoop's mom, out of all the people and friends she knew, she had Eric J. Chambers to speak at her birthday party. I remember. You know, so that's a testament in itself right there. And as recent as last month, there was mention of the woman, Carolyn Bryant, Emmett Till's accuser, who's still living in Mississippi. And a grand jury in Mississippi declined to indict her for her involvement being the cause of Emmett Till's lynching. What are your thoughts on that? That Almost 70 years later. um, 67 years later. You know, I... There are people in the family who want the justice and they want somebody to have, even if it's served just a few hours in jail, they want someone to do that. Uh, I myself, um, after seeing pictures of her with oxygen in her nose, she's 86 years old. To me, she has had to live a life of a prisoner, basically, you know, and uh, in, within her own you know, world, you know, she, she couldn't live a public life. And I think that that is probably did that probably did more harm to her I than if she would have served three yeah. years in prison or on probation, you know, because she's had to be on the run her entire life up until these latest pictures that we saw, we hadn't seen any other pictures of her except for like when uh, 60 minutes had some about 20 years ago. So she's had to live in total solitude. Yeah. And like they said, she's supposedly on hospice and, and like I did see the uh, the oxygen thing running from her nose and all that stuff. You know, how do I be? Would Mrs. Mobley at this point want her in jail? I'm not sure because yeah. Mrs. Mobley was a very loving, kind and, and a forgiving person. Yes. And uh, I'm not sure if she would want it as much as some of the uh, some of the family members and some of the advocates you know, yeah. and, and if she never, you know, and it looks like she won't, but if she never served time for it, like I said, she's already served 67 years as a prisoner in her own world. Self-imprisonment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can, I can appreciate what you're saying. That That's very true. 67 years of self-imprisonment is, can be torturous, you mm-hmm. know, uh, it depends on, on, on so many things, but, but you are in development with the Emmett Till documentary. I read somewhere something wonderful about truth. Is that the title of it? Well, that is, um, that's the title of the first one that I did. And you might've seen the trailer. Yes. When I was on the word network, I shared that one, but what I'm going to do is, uh, revamp that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, um, you know, add this latest information regarding Carolyn Bryant. In fact, I thought I would have it done by now, but some other things happened, but uh, probably in time for Black History Month next year, I'll do it, if not even for Mrs. Mobley's um, 100th birthday celebration in November. Okay. But nevertheless, November, I just uh, want to do it to be able to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, for the ages, you yeah. know, to preserve that for the ages. It's, it's not going to make sense for just me to have it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I still have interviews and stuff. Like one that I ran on the show Sunday, she talked about how I ran a, a short clip where she talked about the uh, hate, the, the the hateful letters that she received after a television station in Chicago had her on. They preempted programming. They preempted "I Love Lucy," 
And as she mentioned, I Love Lucy television, she said, was relatively new. And so was I Love Lucy. And she said the white racist just had a conniption saying, I can't believe you would interrupt I Love Lucy to bring this junk on because she was there to discuss whether she was going to go to Mississippi for the trial. And so uh, she said she got the most vicious letters uh, as a result of that. So, um, you know, so those are some of the things that I was able to get. And I'm going to, you know, put them on the documentary again so that long after I'm gone that, you know, uh, that information that I was able to get, um, it will live for the ages, you know, because like I said, this, the Emmett Till case was a watershed moment of the modern civil rights movement. Yes, indeed. Sister Rosa Parks, when she sat on that bus, uh, you know, bus. December of the same year, right? Yep. December 1st, 1955. And that's when she said that she was thinking about Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. Just like, I'm I'm tired of what they're doing to us. And we're not out of the woods. America is still, you know, has blood on her hands. And, um, and so this is why we must continue to tell the story because you got, you know, idiots like the, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, where they want us to sweep all of America's torture underneath the artificial turf, pretend that it never happened crazy i don't even want to get into the politics because i know it we're out of town we will be but here that's why we have to tell it calling out the clowns and <laughs> and and we 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 surely you know i i don't want to even spend time on on those people and you said the right word idiots oh my god you, but that's why it's up to us to tell the stories it, you know because it, it, we're in charge of our own history we're here now talking about black history moments and celebrating each other during these these biblical times. I mean, we read about these times that we're living in, in, in the history books, and now we're, we're living them out. So yeah, we have to stick together, tell our stories and make a change in, in this, this nation. But, but I, I want to ask you, because we are really running out of time. Uh, we talked about you literally interviewing every celebrity under the sun. I want to ask you who haven't you interviewed that you'd like to get on your hit list? Probably like President Obama, Michelle, you know, but I'll tell you the question that I usually get is like, who are my favorites? I'm going to ask you that. That's okay. Well, I, when I, 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 so you tell us right now, but I, because I know all of them are meaningful and, and you've interviewed some really, really, really special people, but tell me who's your favorite or what's one of your most memorable or meaningful interviews that you've had. I got a favorite 1A and 1B. Yeah. <laughs> okay. One will surprise you, one won't. 1A would have to be Beyonce. That will, okay. That one won't surprise us. Yeah. Beyonce is one of the nicest uh, people that I've ever interviewed, met. And I first met her when she was about 18 years old. Uh-huh. And, um, in fact, in 2001, we were at the BET Celebration of Gospel, and a friend of mine was working as their publicist just for that night, and she gave me the sign. She was like, Eric, after they interview with Access Hollywood and Entertainment tonight, come down at the end, and uh, I'll see if I can get a shot of you. In fact, there's a picture right there of us. Um, that's a picture I of us. I see it. Yeah. And so what happened is um, we made eye contact, and I didn't know if it was going to happen, and I did. And so we were outside just trying to get out of the presence of everybody else. And Beyonce was like, Eric, she called me by name. She's like, Eric, it's cold out here. If you don't mind a few clothes hanging up, you can come in our dressing room. 
I was like, bet, girl, I'm in there. And so next thing you know, I'm on a golf cart with the children, Destiny's Child, because uh, their trailer was about a block away. And we're at the Wilshire uh, Ebell. And so I'm on the golf cart with them headed to their dressing room. And that's where that picture was. And then even after I did the interview, I just hung out with them for a little while. And, um, and I, I mentioned it to her mom, Tina, because Tina was right like behind us where the picture was getting taken from. And she was like, oh, yeah, I remember that night. So Beyonce would be one A. And then, of course, Mrs. Mamie Till Mobley. But when it comes to the entertainers are concerned, you know, like getting known Sister Rosa Parks and, and Mrs. Mamie Till Mobley for the social significance. But from the entertainment standpoint, um, Beyonce and then number two, Suge Knight. Suge Knight. I had the most amazing That's interview. Surprising. That's the best one. One of your most memorable Suge is one of my most fun interviews ever tell us about that i here in orange county i ran into suge in 2013 at the brea mall and it's a predominantly white area here and i'm looking i see him from a distance and i was like that looked like suge knight so i go over i say suge what you doing in my hood <laughs> and that kind of cracked him up that we're in this yeah. predominantly white orange county you know he said oh i got some uh family and friends family lives here i was like okay and so we chatted for a while i told him about my project dining with the ancestors that i was working on and to my surprise he gave me his cell number and about a year later i run into him at the beverly hills hotel wow and i waited about 45 minutes to because i didn't want to interrupt him having dinner he went outside to take a smoke break and I went around the back and behold, there he was. And I say, Suge, Eric J. Chambers. Remember we met at the Brea Mall? He was like, yeah, man, I remember like it was yesterday. How's your project coming along? Oh, I said, wow. actually, it's coming along well. And then I asked who he would want to dine with. First, he said Malcolm X. And then I said, well, Gladys Knight said she would want to dine with her late mother, Dr. Maya Angelou, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who she said was her cousin. He was like, really? Next thing you know, Benita, he invites me into this private room where his, him, his wife, and his son were sitting there dining. And I'm sitting there with him for the next 45 minutes, fist bumping, laughing, joking. And he was really enamored with the fact that Mrs. Mamie Till Mobley was my surrogate grandmother because I showed him pictures of her. And um, and he asked, he said, you still have my number? And I'm still in awe that I got Suge Knight's cell number in my phone. You know, who knew that this guy who's a, a, a an ordained minister of the gospel and this bad boy of music. Right. And it, it was kind of like the Zacchaeus moment. You know, and um, but but he was one of the most fun interviews. And, and I told him, I said, should you should let me do an interview with you so people can show see this side of you. Uh, yeah. He's like, OK, let's do it. You still have my number. And we were going to this was November 2014. We were going to do it after the holiday season. He got in the trouble that he's in in January 2015. So on the set of Straight Outta Compton. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you, people are shocked. And then some of and people also shocked when they ask, who is some of your least favorite? Probably my least favorite is probably Kirk Franklin, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and my favorite happens to be people like Beyonce and especially Suge Knight, the two of them. Uh, they go down in history as two. Of the, and I've had some wonderful interviews with other celebrities. Sure. But those are the two that really stands out the most because we just like bonded right there together it's amazing how you know you it, it's surprising i don't even want to say the name again you know which was your least favorite but 
it's the I'll way, say it, Kirk Franklin. <laughs> it's the way people, you know, the the way people are are received, the way they approach you, the way they their personality. Uh, look, I've been interviewing Kirk since '94. He still don't know my name. He used to watch my TV. He still don't know my name. And the yeah. last time I saw him, I was like, I'm through. Yeah. I met my man um, Suge Knight. He remembered me after one year. After a year, seeing you later. But you are the type of person who is very memorable, my friend. You are most definitely a history maker. And you have so many incredible stories that I want to continue with. But we're out of time. Well, before we go, we forgot to talk about the books, that, including no, one that you're a part of. Going to ask you at the at, at, at another point in in ending the interview because you'll have an opportunity to give us some information. I want to first congratulate you on all of your success. You are just um, a phenom. Tell us about the book. Tell us what we can look forward to. How people can reach you. How people can get the book. Right here, this is my book series. It's uh, the I Want to Know You series. Mom, I want to know you. Daddy, I want to know you. And I'm working on this one here called Honey, I Want to Know You. And what it is, is there are books that will prompt you with questions to ask your mother or your father or your grandmother, or your grandfather, and then also uh, for couples. And uh, basically, some of the questions begin with, uh, you know, what's the best part of being a mom or dad? What is your fondest memory at, say, for instance, Christmas, Easter, um, Thanksgiving? Uh, where did your family originate from? What was the best day of your life? What was the worst day of your life? Describe your childhood. Are there any illnesses that run in the family? Um, were you in the military? What makes you happy or sad? Your dream date, dream travel destination, favorite foods. And then also I have a segment on it. Um, it, it begins with asking people about, you know, first of all, what's your name? Who are your parents, grandparents? What were their occupations? And then it ends with your legacy. You know, such as uh, when your days are over, how do you want to be remembered? Where do you want to be buried? Do you have insurance? If so, where are the papers? Um, what are your favorite foods, your favorite colors? You know, some of the stuff that we don't ask our parents or grandparents, or if we are a parent, they don't ask us. And then also as a part of the series, I'm going to do, in addition to mom, I want to know you, daddy, I want to know you, and honey, I want to know you. I'm going to do son, I want to know you, daughter, I want to know you, aunt and uncle, and friend. And so it's going to be about an eight to 10 book series. And it's available right now if they go to whodatpublishinghouse.com. That's whodatpublishinghouse.com. Or you could always go to my name, ericjchambers.com. Spell whodat. Whodat, W-H-O-D-A-T, publishinghouse.com. It's a New Orleans thing, whodat. Whodat. Like my production company is whodat production. So I had to you know, uh, keep a little New Orleans in it. Yes. But yes. those are the books. And then, of course, I got the other two books. Uh, one is called uh, The Love I Have for You, which is about my daughter that I wrote about her when she was four, you know, breaking the baby daddy cycle with fatherly love. And then I got another one called Dining with the Ancestors, When Heroes Come to Dinner. And that is a book that where I interviewed about 350 celebs and I asked them if they could dine with anyone from history, who would it be? I've got Morgan Freeman, uh, Gladys Knight, Taraji P. Henson, um, Tyler Perry, um, you name them, they're in the book. And uh, Cedric the Entertainer and and so many others. Some of them I forgot that I even had in the book until I kind of thumbed through it from time to time. 
it's a, but I'm just blessed though, Benita, that I'm, you know, living in my divine calling. You know, there's so many people who uh, go through life and they never get a chance to really achieve that because why they have been so conditioned to work for other people. See, I haven't had to click a job, a regular job since 01. One of the best things that happened to me was in 2001 when CBS let me go. And they let me go because of the merger with another TV station. So there is no need in having, you know, duplicate numbers with editors and producers and stuff. But that was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And you don't realize it at the moment, but these things are necessary for your development, for your growth, for your breakthroughs so that you can touch your dreams. You just said something really important. How many people have seen their dreams? It's right here within us, but we are so busy fighting each other and, and ourselves for trying to reach a certain platform or a certain level of recognition when you have to first go within yourself recognize your own strengths and power. I mean, I guess it's, we, we have to live through this. It's kind of easy to say, and I don't want to sound cliche-ish, but it, it's, it's really a, a, a real thing. If you just take a moment and use your powerful breath, breathe through these tight moments, these tough situations to get you to the next and just go, the, 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 the solution is right here in the problem. And if you just take a moment and think about what it is you desire, it's right here. For and then people have to learn to be fearless. You know, like, again, there's so many people who envy you and me because we're living in our purpose. You know, when you have your purpose, but the thing about it is for those who are listening or watching, everybody has purpose, but it's a matter of us. Are you going to tap into that? Are you going to take action? Finally, there's a, um, a saying that I created called the ghost at the grave. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is when they're lowering our casket into that ground, I don't want a bunch of visions of my ghost visions of my, of my dreams standing there saying, why did he abandon us? You know, who's going to take care of us now he's gone. And so there's too many people who have too many ghosts at the grave when they're getting buried, there stand some of the greatest visions that they had, but they were too afraid to step out on faith. And so I'm not going to orphan mine. Everybody, I'm not going to look, trust me, I'm not going to accomplish everything. But Lord knows, man, if I never accomplished another thing for a little kid who was born of an affair from the Desire Projects of New Orleans on welfare up until I was 19 when I joined the Navy. um, It's been one heck of a ride and it's it's been good and it's getting more better. And I just want to inspire other people. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in to Black History Mini Docs podcast. Please look for more exciting episodes to come and please subscribe to BHMD. Hit love, like, share, and leave us your comments with whatever is on your mind. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Benita Brisker. Take a break to create a very empowering moment in time. Be strong, be kind, and be well. Black is the